this day, the ancient world. So millions of people were being manipulated all by the same system of, of debt, basically. A debt system because money lending and debt with the front for the king and the queen uh, ruling the country with their advisors has been going on for thousands of years. And around the 1500s, in the court of Queen Elizabeth I, you find a coterie around this particular queen who were called Rosicrucians openly in the history books. No conspiracy books here, history books. And these Rosicrucians, John D. Bacon and a whole bunch of them, were in the process of creating a new system. John D. wrote about it, and so did Bacon. Bacon talked about the, the alteration or the creation, actually, of the new English language to be the universal business language, commercial language of the future, whereas John D. coined the term the British Empire, which would one day run the world. It would run the world on a basis of free trade, free trade between nations that would adopt the same system as London was, was using at the time. And they would give those who came into it and adopted the same system a term, a term, a sort of title that would give them most favored trading nation status. Something we see getting used today. China was given it by Britain and uh, the USA. So it's not uh, a new world order as such. This new world order has been going on for a long time. And then around the 1700s at the concert of Europe, all the elites gathered together, and they knew they couldn't go on forever having wars and profiting from them, although it helped keep the populations down and brought in the coffers through taxation. Everyone gets taxed to the hilt for war, and you don't mind so much because the big boys are going to protect you and keep you safe. That's what they, that's what they tell you. So, But they knew they'd come to a stage where there'd be no more enemies, and what would happen then? Well, they knew they'd have to find enemies within. This is what we found with the Soviet system. Once they had their borders pretty well defined, and no one could get in or out, you have to turn and find terror within, because that's the method of keeping everybody obedient. When you can't find enemies abroad, you get enemies within, and anyone can be an enemy because political correctness, a term that's translated right out of the Soviet Union, is in use here, and it has constantly been updated. Now, around the late 1800s, certain foundations were formed uh, around the theories put out by Charles Darwin. Now, Charles Darwin was no genius. His grandfather had already put out um, a book on, on basically evolution, origin of species. didn't go very far. But coupled with the Royal Society, which was also a Freemasonic scientific society, they pushed Charlie Darwin and his origin of species and survival of the fittest. It was a system to validate the elite's already confirmed, basically, idea or belief that they were the most evolved species on the planet. They proved it by breeding with the right people down through the generations, holding on to power and grabbing the wealth of the planet. That's why they're the survivors, and they're the survivors of the fittest, basically. That's what it's all about, and that's why they had to put Charles Darwin out there. They had to also start bringing down the religions, 
it served their purposes. Now they were a hindrance because before they used to keep the people obedient, but they'd still left bits in the holy books that they haven't taken out over the many centuries to do with certain rights or freedoms. And so that would have to be eliminated and a new system of basically secular humanism taught to the public. This was decided in, in the 1800s, and the man who took over from Charles Darwin was his best friend, and that was Sir Thomas Huxley, who taught in London and Oxford. And Sir Thomas Huxley was a champion then of Darwinism. Uh, they call it social Darwinism. He set up uh, an organization to recruit young budding authors, people who could be groomed to be authors, and H.G. Wells was one of them. And every young man in that school became a famous author eventually, and they were given red ties because red is the color, the color of revolution. Their job was to go out there, write novels containing predictive programming, in other words, familiarizing you of, with ideas wrapped in story form so that when the real thing happened in your lifetime you would think it was all quite a natural progression and Tavistock eventually took over from that and then the futurist society that really dishes out the money to the best novelists uh, and the top novelists that you hear and you see in all the bookstores uh, they took over and they give the grants out to particular novelists who fascinate you very fascinating people fascinating stories but they wrap in predictive programming towards a type of future I don't think any of us want really to go into. Now, one of the men who came out with almost the whole agenda was was Aldo Huxley. And Aldo Huxley, again, an aristocrat, descendant of Sir Thomas Huxley, all, the, all in the family, all down through the ages. His brother was the head of UNESCO, the first head of UNESCO, who now his brother was also the top uh, man that pushed eugenics because eugenics, coming from Darwinism again, they believed was the way to go. They believed that the commoners were going to outbreed all those with brains, uh, and they also said the commoners had no virtue, were just too common, silly, stupid, and rough, and therefore we couldn't be uh, upgraded, you might say. So the idea was, and they discussed this at top world meetings, could they actually forbid people to marry? Could they forbid certain types to breed? And could they actually force, and Huxley talked about this, Aldo Huxley talked about it, could they actually force all women to accept the sperm of selected noble people? That way they'd breed all the bad types out and put their own uh, you know, special sperm in there. Because these guys all come from special wombs. And that was the idea behind it. And you find that they didn't want to do that. They thought the people wouldn't quite go for that at the time. So as people became more and more infertile, strangely enough, from the 1950s onwards, they brought out sperm banks. And most people who contribute to the sperm banks are medical students, people with the right stuff, at least the right bank accounts, So, which means they're obviously a little bit more savvy than others. And there's, there's so many going out there, people walking around today, that are actually, their fathers are now doctors. You wouldn't believe it. So there's a eugenics program underway. We find the United Nations statistics give out every year the latest stats on the sperm count of the Western males, down 75% of 1950. There's no comment about 
big players in all of this. Uh, Charles Galton Darwin, the grandson again of Charles Darwin, who was a physicist, this man, in the 1950s wrote a book called The Next Million Years. And in that book, he details everything I'm talking about, the elite's fear of the commoners outbreeding the wealthy and intellectual and what they must do about it, including ways to to basically introduce more female hormones into the male and more male into the female. For those who think they haven't done it, have a look around you today. It's been going on for a long time. He suggested ways, again, through inoculation, uh, through the water supply, and through the food supply. That's what he suggested in his day. Now, these guys were big players. They, they formed the League of Nations. The League of Nations was one of the big organizations that the other foundations, the Cecil Rhodes Foundation, the merged with the Milner Foundation, the Round Table Society, that became the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations, formed the League of Nations. And this League of Nations was to be the embryo of world government, a world run on a scientific basis, a scientific form of humanism. And H.G. Wells wrote about it once it was formed, and he said, at last, he says, the whole idea of nationhood is gone, because now, with all the laws that are written into the League of Nations, bureaucratic divisions from one country or another can go directly across their counterparts and bypass all the politicians. And he was quite right. That's what they've been doing since then. This is confirmed in the books you'll, you'll find by other big players in all of this. And you should get the book called The Anglo-American Establishment and Tragedy and Hope by Professor Carol Quigley, who was the official historian for the Council on Foreign Relations. Now, he was all for this whole Brave New World idea. I thought it was about time that it came along. And he thought there's no reason why the public shouldn't accept it now. And I think he was right, personally. They're pretty well dumbed down enough to accept anything. That's my own opinion. And um, he published those books. And in the Anglo-American establishment, he tells you that for 50 years there has been, running the United States and other countries in the Western world, a parallel government, the parallel government, a government that's not answerable to the people. And that's the Royal Institute for International Affairs and all of its other affiliations. The American branch is simply called the Council on Foreign Relations, it's the same ones. And they drafted up all of the papers for the integration of Europe. And they also came out on national television in Canada two years ago and admitted for the first time as a group on air that they had drafted up all the ones for the integrations of the Americas. So here's a private, supposedly non-political organization that's funded by all the big foundations. The Rockefeller uh, Foundation generally publishes their books that they, they print on their own behalf, where they say right inside the cover, we are a non-political organization. And they're telling the truth, even though the average person will think all they do is talk politics, but they're not talking politics. They're telling you the agenda for global governments. I'll be back after these following messages.
Hi, folks. Alan Watt back with Cutting Through the Matrix. Just going through some of the history, just a little bit of the history. It's so vast and so interlocking all of the, the stories and foundations and organizations. It staggers the mind. And they're bringing you up to speed on how this whole world system was planned a long time ago. When Cecil Rhodes was put out there again as the first non-governmental organization, but given a royal charter, a royal charter, royal permission to exist as a particular type of foundation, a foundation where they sent people across the world to grab the natural resources, mainly in Africa to begin with, then over the rest of the world, the natural resources of the planet. And, and from there, they joined the Cecil Rhodes Society with Lord Alfred Milner's group, the Round Table Society. They do the debating. They work out all the plans for the Royal Institute for International Affairs. They work on the details, how to make it happen. And you should try and get your hands on some of the books they printed, especially in the 1930s through the 40s. Around 1950, they quietened off a bit because they quite couldn't get government through this, this global government idea. After World War II, for about two or three years, they were gung-ho. They thought everyone was on their knees, fed up with war, and we would have accept global government. But they found out through constantly taking the pulse of the public, it wasn't time yet. In fact, H.G. Wells said we need another war. He said that just before he died in 1948. So... They've had multiple wars since. They came up with a Cold War idea that was the best one because during World War II, Stalin, the big dictator of the Soviet Union, was called Uncle Joe. And Hollywood went to town, turning up movie after movie and propaganda, uh, expose after another, calling him Uncle Joe. But in the 1950s, when they needed an enemy, and they always need an enemy, you see, they came up with the big bad bear. So Joe turned into the bear. And we had 50 years of a Cold War where both sides could, could work the people to death, tax them, and pretend we're all going to get nuked all the time. And when, you, when you're under that kind of fear and threat, you look to your government to protect you, and all the guys with the spaghetti on their, on their caps at the top and the epaulets, etc., stand there resolutely and say, yes, we will defend you, but it's going to cost you mutual buckles. And that's what they did for 50 years. Most of that money went into pockets, but a lot of it went into high-tech weaponry. Weaponry plus security equipment, the kind that's now being shown to the public today for the first time. That was its main reason. That's what NASA exists for. It's also to do with communications in space and observation of the planet. And one day, all of these satellites will be following you everywhere you go in this little planet when you have a little chip in you that was planned a long, long time ago. Now, after, after they, they came out with the big foundations for Ford, Carnegie, uh, and other ones, and many of them merged actually and took over. I think the Rockefeller now runs the Carnegie. You don't know he runs one of them. But uh, they dished out money to non-governmental organizations, all what you think are the grassroots ones, the left-wing ones, the right-wing ones, and they have them all fighting during the Cold War. And now it's been admitted to with declassified documentation that these were not really left-wing or right-wing leaders. Uh, the followers were left-wing and right-wing that were having clashes in different countries. The tops of them were all members of the C 
said, they control sides of everything. Both sides are always under their control. And they've now admitted that the, the most radical left-wing groups in the U.S. were headed by their own agents. They even put out millions of dollars in the music industry to get particular types of music on the go. Uh, they also put millions out to artists to, to do these nihilistic paintings that would make you want to commit suicide after looking at them for 30 seconds because they want to be more left-wing and radical than the left-wing in the Soviet Union. That was the idea. And so all people who were leaning left would join their foundations, their groups, and, and would leave communism alone. That was supposedly the idea. And the CIA and MI6 joined together and put up their own office in London where they shared this particular building and controlled the cultures of Europe, including France and other countries. What is culture? Culture is basically the system you're born up into. Uh, every mammal, every mammal born, learns from one or other of the parents what it should beware, what it should be afraid of, and humans are exactly the same. A child who's born into this system will find that if their parents don't know there's a game going on and have swallowed reality as it's been presented to them, will swallow that reality exactly the same way. If their parents don't warn them, the child will grow up thinking that everything around them, his fashion, his culture, the technology that's dished out to him, everything's just natural and, and he'll go right into it. And he'll go through the school system thinking all that is natural. He doesn't know that he's getting a social indoctrination for a future shortly to be here. That's his main reason. He's been socialized. Really, he's been made to be obedient to uh, an overwhelming system. That's what he's, he's going through. And he will grow up to be a good producer and consumer. He will also grow up to believe that he must save the planet at all costs, that all hell is breaking loose and we're, we're losing everything. Uh, he'll, be, he'll believe that the government must take over everything because we're just too stupid. We are so wasteful and disorganized that we'll ruin the whole planet. But in reality, those who have ruined so much of the planet are the big international corporations who are heading all of these NGO groups, including all the greenies. The, re the reason you have green and a green party is quite simple. These are all high lodges. You have the Blue Lodge for Masons, so the Conservatives all wear the blue ties in all Western countries. Those who pretend they're Labour uh, wear the red ties or Liberal. So they have the Green Party as well for the Green Lodge. These are all lodges. There's also a Black Lodge and others that most of the public don't know about. Everything is run by these big foundations, and the system is kept in place through all the organizations of bureaucracies and police enforcement, as they call themselves now, and now health authorities with their own enforcers. It's held in place by them, and everyone you'll find at the top belongs to one of these societies, these so-called Freemasonic societies. And every Mason knows that you must always obey an order instantly from a superior, and any personal moral res uh, problems you have with the order, you must reserve and put them to the side. You must not bring your own morality into it. It's built on faith. You do as you're told. They must have a good reason from the top, and that's what you do. Now, Freemasons today, even from the from the, the, the Coronati Lodge in London, that's the main lodge for all of their data, their histories, 
are putting books out now admitting, yes, they were behind the pushing of not just national educational associations, but world associations, UNESCO, etc. They want a world that is based on a culture, a particular type of culture, and it's the culture that we know at the moment in the West. They decided this back in the 1700s, that all different types of cultures would have to either adapt or die. Because any inferior culture they claimed that they brought in through a new age or into a new age would upset and bring down the superior culture. John Stuart Mill, who was a top economist in the 1700s, and his son took over of the same name, were top economists for the, the biggest uh, corporations in Britain, and they advised royal families. Now we're back after these following messages. News, politics, cover-ups, government corruption. You're listening to We the People Radio Network. WTPRN. They wondered 
how to get the public to tune in every day to these fictional dramas that we're having about the war. And at the end of every hour, Harry would be left in a, with a shell hole, with a live shell, and that was called a cliffhanger. And, and millions of people would tune in the next day on the radio to hear what happened to poor old Harry. In other words, they're altering your behavior, behavior modification, simply by giving you or reading you a novel. And so they tied that up with the Tavistock Institute, which is the world's premier institute for basically mind control and culture control. And they went on from there and developed different scenarios. They work hand in glove with the foundations and the Futurist Society that comes up with more predictive programming. The idea being that when you enjoy a movie, for instance, you, your sensor part is down. You're not thinking critically, no matter how bizarre the scene is, especially in science fiction, and you're enjoying it too, your, your adrenaline is up. But inside the stories, there are certain changes in society that you're going to notice, different kinds of of roles, even gender roles, and, and even even genders, for that matter. It's all wrapped up in these stories. And then when it happens in real life, you think it's all quite natural as a progression, and it's nothing of the kind. It's planned that way. Lenin, who was taught by the biggest bankers and some of the best scientists on this, the biggest psychologists, understood this, and he said there are a thousand directions and pathways that humankind, society, could go, but the public must not be made to believe this or to know this, he said they must think the one that they're living in has naturally evolved, and that's what most people have been trained to believe today in all countries. We're going towards a brave new world scenario, a scenario described in the 1930s by, by people like Aldo Huxley and Brave New World, and then his non-fictional book that he followed it up with, which was Brave New World Revisited, where he put forth why all of the scenarios in the fictional book could be made to happen and pointed out what he thought were the benefits of it. He had a lecture given in the 1960s, but 67 in Berkeley. I have it on my website, cuttingthroughthematrix.com. Look into it, download it, listen to it. And you'll hear a man, remember the descendant or, and from the best friend of Charles Darwin, a man whose families interbred other families, just like the Darwins did too, specifically for their offspring and a certain IQ and a certain pretty well psychopathic temperament. And he'll give his justifications in that audio as to why there's no reason why they shouldn't drug people into a sort of submissive happiness. He said, what's wrong with that? He says, most people are unhappy anyway. And the elite knew that because they created a system where people were fairly unhappy, a dysfunctional system. You worked 12 hours a day when he gave that lecture and, and as a working class person in Europe. And you didn't earn very much money at all in a pretty well fixed price and income society like Britain was. And people were rather miserable, always worried about money for the basic things in life like rent. And, and Huxley thought there was nothing wrong with drugging them or even putting wires in their brain, the precursor to what's coming, which is the brain chip. And once that happened, of course, he thought they'd have a, a form of utopia. And this goes right back to psychology again, to the behaviorists in psychology like the Skinners 
and all the, the, the rest of the psychopaths that experimented on their own children, like Skinner, he put his daughter in a particular type of box to study her, and is still taught today as a hero in psychology. The man was a psychopath, plain and simple, just like Huxley and Huxley's brother. Why were they psychopaths both? Because both Huxleys were descendant from psychopaths, were descended from them. And just like Plato said, you can breed traits or in or out of humans the same way as you can with domesticated animals. So inbred psychopaths pretty well guarantee the offspring to be the same way. Part of the brain where emotion is centered and empathy for other people just doesn't seem to be there. But what does seem to be there is a tremendous lust for power. Look up the psychopath, look at the traits of the psychopath, and it's fascinating. They all crave power, and in Henderson and Gillespie's textbooks of psychiatry, the, the boys who did the big studies on psychopathy, they were shocked for the first time to realize that no, it, it didn't stop at working class people. That's where they used to see the psychopaths, the ones at the bottom that smashed windows for inter, in, instant gratification and robbed the jewelry stores. They found that the, the, the brighter ones from the better families went into politics. Politics. And they class politicians as a particular type of psychopath, which they are, in fact are. They if you see them running for elections and they have all their past history and they have mud slung at them to do with their, their previous affairs or whatever, they don't blush. They don't run off for cover and feel ashamed. They'll, they'll try and bluff their way out of it. And even if they're caught red-handed doing something, they're just as, 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 as arrogant. Nothing faces them. That's the psychopath. Because the psychopath must save their own ego at all costs because they are completely egocentric. The world revolves around them. So they have a lust for power over others to dominate them because the one gift that they have outside of the fact that they have no empathy for others, the one gift is the ability to manipulate others to do what they want them to do. That's why in this system that we live in, those who are most aggressive get to the top. This is not a normal society we're living in. It's a constructed society we're living in. People at the bottom worship those at the top. They've made it. They've, they've got out of the fear trap. They're not afraid of poverty anymore. They, they have power. People bow down and respect them. And that's what everyone at the bottom eventually wants themselves. But they're too meek and mild to go for it. They don't like hurting other people on their way up like the Donald Trumps do. So we have lots of psychopaths at the top, and the other group goes into politics. Politics of all things, where they can lie to the public without blinking or blushing. They can go through impeachments and all this kind of stuff, and still not blink or blush or stammer, because they're completely 100% confident, and they have no respect for the people at the bottom. That helps, too, when you have no respect for the little people at the bottom. You're talking to a bunch of ants, not people. And that's why Bill Clinton didn't even wink an eye when he made his famous statement on television after blowing smoke rings from with Havana cigars. So that's what we're dealing with, particular psychopathic types. Now, this was even more studied in the Soviet bloc. And I'll be talking about more of this 
and the scientists that found it all out in the next section coming up after these messages. Plato's Republic uh, with this long-range agenda, 
where eventually they would bring in the females into the military alongside the males. And they hoped eventually to have an interbred military class eventually, a separate species almost, and with the offspring being born in the bases and then becoming military members themselves, separate from the general population. And he said that around that time there'd be further moves to create special types of humans uh, for special jobs. Although Plato talked about really selective breeding. If you want tall people to pick apples, you simply breed them together uh, over and over and over till you have tall people. If you want miners to go down mines, you want small squat people, very strong. So you breed little men with little women and end up with a good little miner. However, today they've taken it further, but basing it on Plato's Republic and they want to to give us purposely designed people, ideal design, that's the other meaning of ID. Like Mr. Bush Sr. said when he gave his New World Order speech on September the 11th, 1990, to be followed by September the 11th, 1991, when he saw this New World Order coming into view, and it was also a big ID, he said. It all ties together. And you'll find, if you want to look at when the Pentagon, there would be a big player in this, it was a takeover from Britain uh, and rule as the policeman of the world for a time that was printed the 1930s publication, 1937 actually, of the Royal Institute for International Affairs when they held their meeting in Melbourne, Australia. The U.S. was to take over from Britain, and then once the U.S. was exhausted, it would hand it over to China, which they were going to build up after the war. But the Pentagon's had its foundation ceremony on September the 11th, 1941. They love that date. Why? Because September the 11th still falls under the Ides of September. And in ancient times, in old Roman times, you'll find that, uh, that uh, the warrior queen, Diana, from the Greeks actually, was born out of the head of Zeus, self-willed to be born out of the head of Zeus, which meant, in the occult terminology of the time, that something that was impossible to happen would be made to happen by the will of the one behind it. And so you had September 11th, 2001 happening right on cue after the book was printed, The Grand Chessboard by Zygmunt Brzezinski, who was a member of this coterie who all worked together in the New American Century Club. They are now in power who published their own findings in 1992, their mandates, and republished it in 1998, talking about the need to take over first Afghanistan, and then Iraq, and then Iran, then Syria, in that order. And lo and behold, like Zinyu Brzezinski and others said, we need something on a Pearl Harbor scale to motivate the public behind us, to get the public on board, because it's the first thing you do in war, is to create public opinion, get it on board. And they had their wish come true when Jacqueline Boas was blown up for the second time. They didn't do it right the first time. But personally, I think they put the charges in when they, they rebuilt it after the first bombing. And the company that did the rebuilding was the Ben Laden family group. I don't know if you know the Ben Ladens were given a special flight out of the country by permission of the Bush family after 9-11, there were only plane that was allowed to fly, civilian plane, and the whole country 
and it was announced on CBC Canada that Mr. Bush Sr., ex-CIA and President Man, is in partnership with the Ben Laden family. What did they do? They make bomb-proof structures all over the world, and it was the Laden company that got the contract to rebuild the towers after to actually recondition them after the first attempt uh, at blowing them up. And I've no doubt that's when they put the charges and you know the demolition charges when you saw it being demolished floor by floor like any other demolition. Put in there and left and put on remotes and then triggered at the right time. Quite simple. They'd never do that, people think, and that's why they get away with it over and over and over again. They'd never do that to their own people. Well, here's what Cecil Rhodes did when he got in power as the head of his foundation. He sent a bunch of guys to attack South Africa, attack the Boers, and he had his own reporter from a British newspaper on board, and she reported that the Boers were attacking the British. Meanwhile, in reality, it was a bunch of invaders, all recruited from England, who went in and started killing the Boers. Once the British government heard about it, well, of course, they had no choice but to go in and defend the poor English that were getting slaughtered to take over South Africa. They start the problem, blame the other side, and they get the agenda through. Nothing changes. Now, if you go into what a knight is, see what a knight, once you get up the high Masonic ladder to, and you've served the great work very well, you can keep your mouth shut, you've taken your payolas and put it in your pocket and kept quiet about it many, many times, then you're trustworthy and you might get knighted. What does the knight do? Well, he serves a master. He's on an errand. And he also has a mission. He's a quest, you see. And he's told what his quest will be. But he faithfully serves his master and he does what he's told. That's what a knight is. But a knight is also audacious. You'll find a knight is bold. And our name for that is audacious. Audacious is audacity. Audacity is the ability to do something completely unexpected and get away with it. And that's what you do in big battles. You do something that's completely unexpected. It's almost not human. And therefore, whatever has been fooled, you, you give them your master stroke and you finish them off. That's what they do to the public. They do amazing things to us, even planning wars and world wars, even funding guys like Hitler. And they also fund, funded the Bolshevik Revolution. These same foundations funded it in collusion with their governments. You should read the, the books. It's called um, um, Russia uh, uh, and, uh, and the Bolshevik Revolution, or, the, or New York and, and the Bolshevik Revolution. Anthony Sutton wrote it anyway. And he also wrote, wrote the book, Who Funded Hitler? All documented evidence. Check into it. Fascinating stuff. I'll be back after these following messages. 